Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, brought to you by the Independent Institute. My show that tries to bring a uniquely rational perspective to important issues facing our society today. Today's guest, Representative Chip Roy, currently serving his third term in Congress, representing Texas's 21st Congressional District. He served before that as first attorney general assistant to Texas under Ken Paxton, the chief of staff to Senator Ted Cruz, and as senior advisor to Texas's former governor, Rick Perry, and in different capacities was a federal prosecutor as well as an investment bank analyst. He serves on many important committees in the House, including the Judiciary Committee, the Rules and Budget Committees, and most importantly, Representative Roy is an outspoken advocate for government accountability and against government overreach. Chip and I have an important conversation about what Congress is doing to restore and ensure freedom, the rule of law, and the proper role of government in a free society. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned. Representative Chip Roy, welcome. Thank you for coming. Great to join you, Scott. Appreciate everything you do and everything you've stood up for and try to combat uh, the big government and tyranny over the minds of man and, and just uh, what you mean for health care. And uh, our friendship has grown over these last several years in some kind of tough circumstances. So I'm glad to join you on this podcast. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, and I also similarly want to thank you for being so outspoken, so direct, uh, trying to really restore the accountability of government to American people. I mean, that seems to be disregarded, sadly, by many people who don't understand an elected and unelected government. They actually are employees of the people. Somehow that message has been lost, as you know. Uh, let's start with uh, really the the big thing about accountability, and maybe as an introduction, I can ask you a simple question uh, for Americans. What What is the Freedom Caucus? I, I sort of don't uh, understand even why we would need a Freedom Caucus, given that our country is founded on freedom. So maybe you can you can uh, enlighten us. What is the Freedom Caucus? You, you are the uh, the really the one of the key people in charge of it. Well, Scott, thanks. Yeah, I mean, so. Um... You know, my history with Congress goes back a little bit. I was Senator Cruz's chief of staff, as you might remember, and I uh, worked as, uh, as a lawyer on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I know how this town works and doesn't work. And uh, the Freedom Caucus was founded in, I think, 2015. And that was on the heels of a lot of changes going on in this town. And it started in significant when we met in the basement uh, with Senator Cruz and a bunch of House members when we were fighting Obamacare in the fall of 2013. I know you remember that well because it was front and center for any healthcare practitioner, healthcare academic, any freedom-loving American who wants to be able to go get the doctor of his or her choice without mandates from Washington. So that actually served as the catalyst on the back of the Tea Party wave for a group of us, I wasn't here then, but a group of my colleagues, the Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and others, to found the Freedom Caucus. And we are a group of members who believe in freedom. We believe in limited government. We believe we should be truthful to the American people. We believe we should hold our leaders, Republican and Democrat alike, accountable to the Constitution and to what we campaign on, to do what we said we would do, to quote my friend Jim Jordan, who was the chairman of the Freedom Caucus uh, before Andy Biggs and now Scott Perry, uh, Jim took over from Mark Meadows. So it's a great group of freedom-loving Americans. We've stood tall on COVID tyranny. 
We've tried to stand up for border security. We've tried to stand up for limited spending. And uh, I'm proud to be part of it. I'm the policy director. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot more we got to do uh, to try to get this country on track. Right. Well, I, I want to thank you for that. It's, it Again, it strikes me and maybe uh, many people as sort of strange that we even need to have something called the Freedom Caucus. Uh, that's, a, that's a real sign of what the state of our government is and the lack of accountability toward the basic elements of, of our country, because without freedom, we really have nothing. Uh, let's move right into uh, one of your big uh, efforts uh, that's part of, uh, again, Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee, which is this uh, this report that came out in November of 2023 on the weaponization of really the concept of misinformation. Yeah. Okay. And the, the collusion, really, it seems, between the government, social media, and particularly my own university, Stanford University. Yeah. Uh, why don't you uh, sort of summarize what that report found and uh, and then, of course, what we can do about it? Sure. Well, let's think. I always like to start with context for your listeners, right? We've got many areas in which the federal government is engaging where it shouldn't and doing things that are uh, an affront to our civil liberties on multiple levels. Uh, we're seeing it with the foreign intelligence surveillance and, and data collection. We're going to be taking that issue up in judiciary just this week. But the context you're talking about ties directly to misinformation and its relationship to elections. And you mentioned Stanford. Let's back up for a second. Last January, when we were having the debate over the speaker and we were kind of making C-SPAN great again when everybody was watching the floor of the House, one of the things we agreed with then speaker, well, soon to be speaker Kevin McCarthy, was to create a subcommittee on weaponization within the Judiciary Committee, where we would try to focus and bring to light the many ways in which the federal government has been weaponized against the American people, whether it's the Department of Justice generally, DHS, uh, whether we're talking about our elections, whether you're talking about COVID tyranny. And in this context, what you what we learned is that a uh, subpart of the DHS, CISA, uh, was a part of basically uh, forming a effort called the, I think, Election Integrity Project, if I've got my acronym correct, and working with Stanford to effectively uh, engage in, in censoring American speech leading up to the 2020 elections. The weaponization report detailed a number of ways in which that was occurring in the summer of 2020 and uh, laid out a report, which I would encourage everybody to read and look at. And this was, uh, and we're starting to bring to light the many different ways in which we saw uh, through social media and technology, whether it was now Meta, but you know, Facebook, uh, the various uh, uh, entities that were working with the government directly or frankly being pressured by the federal government uh, to pr produce misinformation. And unfortunately, Stanford was a part of that, quote, election integrity project. And I think this is one of those things that I was having a conversation with a theologian, actually, just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, and he was talking about the decadence that we were experiencing here in the United States. Part of that decadence, the amount of money that's flowing to these massive universities in the name of progress. And what we're doing is we're engaging in this kind of anti-freedom anti-free thought, anti-Western civilization, anti-classic liberalism uh, that they will pride promote and use the power of the government to clamp down on free thought. It's the opposite of the age of reason, the opposite of, of enlightenment. And I think this this report is pretty damning. Right. And it's also, uh, you know, as you point out, it's the opposite of the role of the university, particularly, which is supposed to be the center of the free exchange of ideas. And to teach our young people, as I say many times, 
think critically, you cannot think critically if you don't hear disparate views. By definition, it's impossible. But this is very, I think this is a frightening turn of events. And I, again, I think a lot of things were exposed by the pandemic itself. Yes. Uh, where uh, these problems existed. Maybe they even existed in the era of Walter Cronkite in the news. I don't know. I wasn't, I was very politically naive at the time, as we all probably were. But, you know, this kind of censorship of information by virtue of calling something, deeming something misinformation is, is tragically harmful to the free discussion because it doesn't just censor information. It also, because of its secondary cancel culture, vilification, demonization of people who speak against this narrative and saying they're dangerous it makes people afraid to speak out. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's a cycle that needs to be exposed. And the first step is what, what you and your committee uh, and uh, Jim Jordan's committee have done with these kinds of exposing the detail of this, the depth of this censorship. There should be no one, and I, I'd like to hear your opinion on this, should there be anyone who is in charge of determining what misinformation is? No, of course not. I mean, and that that gets into, I mean, that's, that's, this is so important. I mean, I even heard a Republican presidential candidate recently uh, say something about needing to make sure that all of us have identification online uh, that, so that with the government can know that we're talking about, you know, certain individuals. It happened to be the former governor of South Carolina who, you know, she's right. This is Nikki Haley. Yeah. This is Nikki Haley you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and, and go and ahead. Say, yeah. And said that we should be, you know, somehow identified online. So they're going, our founding fathers wrote anonymously in numerous contexts, particularly with respect to the Federalist Papers, that helped form this government. And they did so anonymously for a reason, because you were able to put ideas into the public mainstream and get people to see them without the bias that would come from knowing who you were, or importantly, without the ramifications so people could speak freely. I know, and you know, individuals during COVID who have been putting information out publicly and doing so anonymously because they know they would have retribution at universities like Stanford or like I've got, uh, you know, uh, well, I won't name the universities and try to protect them. There are individuals that I know that would talk to me and say, I'd get fired, right? I'd get fired. Sure. No, I, I saw it myself. I mean, I had uh, many, many people at my own Stanford University after the censure of me right. said to me, Scott, we, we agree with you, but we're afraid for our careers. And I think uh, that's true. And, and in fact, I, I, I believe that there is a deficit in integrity. There is a deficit, though, in courage in our yeah. country. But in the meantime, I'm not sure what the what the positive is of a government who uh, insists on knowing who you are so that you can uh, they can track you down. I think that was a horrendous uh, statement by Nikki Haley. I'm sorry to say that it was terrible. And it, look, and it, I'm looking down at my phone. I pulled up that specifically in that report, right, it was CISA with DHS along with the Global Engagement Center at the State Department that coordinated with Stanford uh, to create that election integrity partnership. But keep in mind this, this is the important part. For the first time, internal emails from that election integrity uh, project state that EIP was created, quote, at the request of DHS and CISA, end quote. That's the problem, right? You've got academics, academics coming together to sell show that, oh, we're doing this objective election integrity effort. But it wasn't objective. It was being pushed of course by the government to advance an agenda. That is tyranny. That is a problem. 
Absolutely. And I, and I think this is the same kind of logic they use to suppress information about COVID. Uh, the fact is they were saying incorrect information. Uh, but but the point is, if their arguments are so good, they shouldn't need to suppress the uh, the uh, people who disagree. The idea of a free society, free debate, the importance of it is to give people the information, intelligent people. We have to trust our citizens. I'm not sure uh, why you wouldn't unless you want to live in an author authoritarian society. So, you know, I think this is very important work. Uh, exposing the truth is the first step toward fixing things. And I think people don't even understand the depth of this problem. And I think that's very good work by Congress. But it sort of gives me the next step in the question is that many Americans feel frustrated at the, although well-intentioned acts of Congress, the, the lack of real accountability. The example that sticks out has to do with COVID, where you have people uh, that lied under oath in congressional testimony, that's perjury. Will they really suffer a consequence from it? And the second example yeah, that I want you to, to comment on is this idea of congressional subpoenas. We see these all the time, yet we see many people just disregard them. What What is the, is this just theater what's going on with the congressional testimonies and the panels? Why is it that there is it's seemingly sort of an asymmetric uh, use of power of Congress that, that Republicans are are in charge of the investigations by owning the House majority, as slim as it is. Uh, yet they uh, it seems like there's a, a real lack of follow through on the accountability. Or am I wrong? I would say that you are mostly right. Uh, what I, the reason I say it that way is. I don't believe that Republicans have done as much as we should to uh, turn the pressure up quickly, particularly with COVID accountability. Uh, I think that the select committee on COVID uh, weaponization, we should be doing more and we should be doing more of the standing committees to highlight it. Um, we are doing some and, and we're seeing yes. some of that being brought to light. It takes time. This is why I said mostly right. There is some defense that, for example, as we're going through the Hunter Biden investigations, right? And we're going through the stuff with Joe Biden and, and, and oversight and then a little bit judiciary. The truth is we're getting no help from the Department of Justice or your normal objective investigative agencies. So we're having to do it all ourselves. And it takes a while to have the power to do those things. To use the subpoena power, it's got to be for generally a legislative purpose, not sheer investigative investigative purpose when you're even doing oversight, right? Like, okay, we're, we're, we're looking at some records information within the legislative power of Congress. So you need something, for example, impeachment, a formal impeachment inquiry to be able to go have those additional tools. So we hopefully will be voting on an impeachment inquiry this week based on all the research. Now that's not what you were getting at, but it's equally true for these other investigative areas, whether it's COVID, uh, whether it's uh, dealing with the weaponization of the DOJ generally, uh, January 6th, other things that we need to be investigating. But I do want to say one other important part to all of this is you know, one of the biggest problems we have is that we've given way too much power to the executive branch, the authority of the president of the United States. Congress yes. has to do more. And we too often punt our responsibility to the executive branch rather than taking it ourselves. We ought to be actually more robust in funding our own investigation and our own offices and committees and be constraining Leviathan and executive branch. So, for example, FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. 
or, or act. Why do we give so much power to the executive branch and the courts in the FISC, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court? Why don't we do more in Congress? That's an example. We need to pull power back to the Article One branch and have more work ourselves exposing all of the things you're talking about. Absolutely. I, I think this is a source of amazement to me and many others is that we seem to have lost the federalist nature of, of our government. I, I don't sort of understand, and this has been, this is not just the Biden administration. This has been going on for several presidential yep. administrations. This massive expansion of executive order, of executive authority, uh, yet we always thought that the the uh, sort of the Congress not only was a check on power, but the funding of these initiatives, the power of the purse, uh, quote unquote, was supposed to be the, the the check on this. But that that seems to be gone. We see executive order after executive order, including things that are are shockingly uh, controversial. It's not just and by the way, not in a in a state of emergency where it, you could, in theory, say, well, we need these executive authorities for emergencies. But as we saw, the term emergency has been abused, uh, particularly during COVID. You know, this brings up something. I mean, you're a former prosecutor. You you went to law school. Uh, you're an attorney, really. And so, uh, you know, we say in the classical readings about America, the Tocqueville readings and things were... Yes, democracy is a problem, but the real the real backstop is the courts in the end to stop abuse of power. Is it just a sort of a biased viewpoint or is it true that now the courts have become part of this politicization? And if so, I'm not sure how we get rid of that. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, so I would tell you that uh, without question, the courts have been a part of the problem for a long time of the politicization of, of uh, I mean, I wouldn't call it justice, but but we've turned the courts all the way back to Marbury versus Madison, which was an overextension well beyond what the founders had envisioned in terms of the power of the courts. And all the way through the 200 years since Marbury, uh, we, have, we have been handing over the determination of our rights, which by the way, were given to us by God, nobody else, into a small cloistered group of people in robes making determinations about how we live our lives. Now, the good news is, for the last 30-odd years, we've been pushing the court in a better direction uh, through the Federalist Society and through some members of the court that, frankly, are getting it more right than not in many cases. But it's still begging the court to protect that which is already ours. That's the thing that always galls me about it. And let me go to your point about the power of the purse, because it's so important. We, particularly Republicans, fail to understand the depth, breadth, and importance of that power. Madison wrote very eloquently in Federalist 58 about the extent to which that power was uniquely given to the Article I branch to restrain the tyranny of the executive, the tyranny of the presidency, the fourth estate, if you will, in terms of all of the bureaucrats over there that have all the power. Yet my colleagues don't seem to understand that. With all due respect, as we go through this spending battle this year, when we're trying to hold down spending, they get caught up talking about it in terms of debt. I do too, because we do need to constrain the debt killing our country. But the real problem is why are you giving a blank check to Anthony Fauci and the NIH and the CDC to do what they just did to the greatest economy in the history of the world and to our civil liberties? Why are you giving a blank check to DOJ to do what they're doing to parents like Scott Smith in Loudoun County? Why are you giving a blank check to DHS not to secure the border? Why are you giving a blank check to a military to be woke instead of focused on defending the country? 
Yeah, my colleagues are just like, but Chip, you don't understand. Pfizer's going to expire. We got they got to have our defense, and we got to we can't just walk away from borders. So you can't hold this bet, guys. If you're never going to use the power of the purse, then give up your voting card. You've got no power right. anymore because that's literally the most powerful weapon we have, and we should actually use it. And look, I support term limits for members of Congress, although at least we have to go back to the public and be voted on. Uh, but you know, with our gerrymandered uh, state of affairs, that that only means so much. The fact is, term limits would be great. But the real thing we ought to do is do more constraint on the people who stay in power. Like Mitch McConnell has been at the top of the chain for Republicans for decades. I mean, it's crazy. Like the fact of the matter is the average term for a member of Congress is about eight years. The fact is most people rotate in and out in two, three, four year increments. But you got a handful who stick around here and they just continue until their octogenarians continuing to screw up America well into their 80s and they don't go away. And they're the same committee chairman and the same leader. So if we we can do that without a constitutional amendment, constrain the leadership, constrain how much power they can have, that would go a long ways into your point, constrain the bureaucrats. Anthony Fauci has been here for decades, enriching himself and screwing up America, all while he gets fawned all over, going around to cocktail you know parties in DC. So to me, you do that. But one other point to all of this is the amount of money that's flowing into the private sector from government contracts and in direct corporate cronyism collusion, destroying our country. Take healthcare generally, which you would know far more than I do, right? We've been watching since Obamacare in the basically the decade since the full implementation of the Obamacare mandate, we've seen an enormous uh, consolidation in healthcare with about a hundred mergers a year, right? Where you now have, what is it? Uh, you know, uh, Cigna and Humana which is looking at like a $60 billion merger. You're seeing what that means in terms of the lack of competition, the lack of the ability for doctor-patient relationships. You're seeing the extent to which all of that money is flowing into there, but the average family of four has got a $25,000 health insurance payment, and it's not even health insurance. It's basically insurance-managed health care, and you only get to go to the doctor of your choice. I am on Obamacare as a member of Congress, if you're, if you're a member of Congress under law, and for, to go to MD Anderson, which saved my life when I had cancer 10 years ago, 11, 12 years ago, I wouldn't be able to go back to MD Anderson on, on my current Obamacare coverage. So how is that good? Yeah, we've destroyed healthcare. To your point, though, it's all tied back to tyranny. When you empower bureaucrats, empower private sector corporate cronies working with those bureaucrats to destroy that which caused you to go into medicine. You didn't go into medicine for that garbage. You went into medicine to help people, to save people. And we got to get back to that. Sorry for that rant, but it's all connected. We've seen a tremendous amount of denial of fact, denial of data, uh, not just with Obamacare, with the idea of single payer being superior to the United States, when we know that single payer systems have worse access and worse outcomes by the facts than in the United States. Uh, so, yes, we need to optimize and improve our health care access and quality, and the cost is uh, is tremendous. And I and many others have written detailed proposals repeatedly on how to reduce the price while actually improving the quality, mainly by competition, by getting rid of these regulations that caused the consolidation that you spoke of, because the consolidation has been worse. It's a, It's not cheaper by consolidating. It's actually more expensive and worse quality. 
And one of the biggest narratives that I'd like you to address is this idea somehow by the proponents of single payer or Medicare for all, this idea that, quote, the Republicans have no plan, unquote, or there is no alternative. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, Republicans clearly failed to grab the mantle in 2017 when President Trump came in and Congress, Republicans weren't ready. They didn't, they didn't hit the ground running and instead they offered effectively Obamacare White in the form of repealing Obamacare and they got lost in the rhetoric of Obamacare repeal. And they got, they got fearful of this idea of people, quote, pre-existing conditions. Rather than just accepting and acknowledging that we are all walking pre-existing conditions, and the whole point is to figure out how to make it to where you and I and all Americans and all people in the world can go get care for the most effective, most efficient, affordable way possible. We believe that when you have competition and markets hold prices down, that that makes you, uh, all people have better care, better access, uh, better uh, control of their own destiny, while you can still have backstops with actual insurance. So Republicans have plans. We're just afraid to talk to them. And so I think we need to go on offense heading into the next cycle and into 2025, the Lord willing, a Republican president. And we ought to be very clear that we want to massively expand, transformatively expand the ability of individuals to have health savings accounts that are fully funded by themselves, but also their employers, change the tax policy, which currently favors uh, a, an employer funding a big insurance-run health plan. Instead, give you the ability to have those funds and go shop. You can go to direct primary care, go to a doctor that will say, look, for $100 a month, you have my cell phone, you can come to my house, you can come to my office, you can get the care you want and create an environment where like I can go anywhere within 20 miles of my house and get like 50 different opportunities to change oil in my car. But when I go through my insurance, I got to go like look at some list to see the three doctors in a two hour radius that some bureaucrat in freaking Topeka, Kansas, working for Aetna, blesses that I can go see a doctor. Transform it, turn it on its head. Republicans go on offense to create an environment where you've got a menu of transparent options. You can go get a knee replacement at the Oklahoma Surgery Center, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, and you know the price, and it's like $15,000. But if I go get that same replacement with uh, you know my insurance, it's gonna be like $50,000 at the hospital. That's stupid. We need to break the right. back of that, and then you can create options for people. Well, I mean, you, you've hit on something, uh, you know, uh, very important. And I've written a, a detailed health proposal myself called Restoring Quality Healthcare, and, and mm -hmm. it was published in 2020. And the key concept here that people don't understand is that if the government prices by fixing the prices or caps the prices or determines the prices, the access goes down. Yeah. That's factually proven in healthcare and in every other industry. This is not even something to be argued. Whereas if you use competition, prices come down, but quality goes up. People compete on the basis of value, which means price plus quality. And a lot of the actual existing uh, regulations have blocked competition, whether it's the monopolies by doctors uh, whether it's the certificates of need that are archaic uh, requirements to get states to have more installation of, of equipment and other things, or whether it's this obscuring of prices by these uh, very uh, high deductible health insurance plans. Give people the money, give people the choice. They drive the prices down because people are smart. They know what they value in healthcare. And this is a subject, of course, of... Uh, 
of our next discussion, maybe. I hope to have you back, Chip. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time and also really for, for being the fighter that you are. We need more fighters in Congress who actually do the right thing, even if it costs them politically. I, I really think that's the essence. And we need people like you who have more courage than the uh, typical congressman, unfortunately. Or, uh, But we're happy to have you. Thank you for trying to restore the accountability back into our system. Well, Scott, thank you. And thank you for having the courage to stand up and speak and go into the Trump administration and speak truth when people wouldn't do it. There are, there are a number of others who have been there. And I, you know, I work with them, you know, uh, uh, Marty McCary is actually a constituent. He lives in South Austin, even though he's up at Hopkins and he travels up here to the DC Baltimore area. And obviously Dr. Koldorf and uh, Jay Bhattacharya and a bunch of others that have been great uh, champions of freedom, healthcare freedom standing up to COVID tyranny. We need you guys to keep holding that line. So God bless you. We're proud to join you here. I look forward to meeting with you back here in D.C. or out in California or somewhere else. Okay, thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Representative Chip Roy of Texas, follow the news on his efforts in the House of Representatives, including the investigations by the House Judiciary Committee in exposing and demanding accountability for malfeasance of our government agencies. And don't forget, please subscribe to this show on YouTube as well as Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else you're listening to podcasts right now. And I'll see you next time.